I'm Steve Hankey. I'm a professor of applied economics at Johns Hopkins and a senior fellow at Cato. I'm going to be chairing the session today. Uh, our centerfold is Professor Steve Walters, <laughs> who will be discussing his new book, Boomtowns, at this Cato Book Forum. Steve uh, received his instruction from the high priest at Wharton in Philadelphia, and then from even the higher priest in those days, the, the, the free market professors at UCLA, and joined the faculty at Loyola University of Maryland. In those days, it was Loyola College. I, st I still haven't made that transition, but it's just Loyola. <laughs> Uh, fortunately, also, Steve is a fellow at the Johns Hopkins Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise. And even more fortunate, I've been a good friend of Steve's now for almost 25 years and, and also a close collaborator. I think I only have one, one other collaborator. I've written more articles. and done more work with than, than Steve. So we, we know each other quite well, and I hold him in very high regard and also enjoy his friendship as, as a colleague. Uh, Boomtowns, I, I, I literally witnessed the birth of Boomtowns because most of Boomtowns was written at the Johns Hopkins University Library as far as I know, unless you were secretly <laughs> squirreling away time uh, in other locales. The book is important, and it addresses an important question, and that is, why do some cities boom and some go bust? And with that, Steve, the floor is yours. Welcome. Thanks, Steve. Um, let me see if I can get the technology to work here. Yes. Um, so I want to first thank you for a very generous introduction, and uh, thanks for mentoring me over the years. Um, I want to thank Jim Dorn for uh, organizing this, uh, this clam bake, um, and uh, thank my distinguished uh, commentators, um, Professors uh, Wagner and Zupan. They're going to, um, um, I actually don't know whether they're going to tear into me and, and tell me where I'm wrong, or whether they're going to um, add to the uh, 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 an agenda of what I can do in the future, but um, I'm very, very grateful to them for um, for reading the book and, and coming down and helping me with uh, with a continuing conversation about what it's about and what how how we can make cities better. And I want to thank you all for being part of that dialogue. There's going to be we've budgeted a lot of time for Q and A afterwards, so you'll get your chance. Um, my agenda in the next 15 or 20 is to, um, as the expression goes, give you the view from 30,000 feet, and then swoop into low altitude, tell one story from the book um, that will illustrate one of its uh, key principles. Um, I want, I'm going to start with an embarrassing confession. Uh, a lot of people ask, well, how long did it take you to write the book? Because I think they're thinking, should I write one too? What's the opportunity cost of writing a book? And uh, the calculation I make is 43 years. <laughs> um, it's not just because I never learned touch typing. Um, this, I think, is a book that you could only, it's a book that only could be written by someone of a certain age, which is to say an old person. 
And um, just someone who's accumulated a lot of data over the years, I've watched the time series evidence accumulate over the years on cities. Um, cities change very, very slowly. If you're watching cities evolve, you're watching a, a very slow motion film. So it's easy to erroneously attribute, um, or, uh, think you've addressed a problem by looking at approximate cause. It's easy to confuse symptoms and um, causes. So it, it just takes a long view. So, so Boomtowns is my attempt to um, step back and um, uh, take the long view and identify some of the fundamental forces that I think uh, determine the health and welfare of cities and their residents. Um, so I say that I started the book 43 years ago when I read uh, this lady's uh, classic book, uh, Death and Life of Great American Cities. Um, I grew up as a child of the suburbs, a, a suburb of Boston, and um, I was dying to get out of there and get to cities. And then when I read to uh, I read the Death and Life of Great American Cities, I knew that there was work to do to uh, to revive them and, and resuscitate them. Um, I knew that the cities were great from a selfish perspective. I knew that, that they were centers of art and culture and, and employment and so forth. But I also knew that they, as, as Jane Jacobs said uh, in these slides, they are uh, really central to our, our welfare as a society more broadly. Um, so her, her, her main point was, this is all true when they work well. And for a long time, American cities, I would submit, did work well. This is data from um, the 1950 census, which I think is the high watermark for most uh, major American cities in terms of working well. I'm, uh, believe me, I'm not arguing that cities were perfect in those days. I'm not arguing that they were socially just. I'm not arguing that, that, they were, that racism wasn't rampant in a lot of decisions that cities and policymakers and individuals made. I'm just saying they worked, they worked well at what uh, Jane Jacobs had articulated uh, uh, they typically do. They, they are transformative. They transform poor people into middle class people. They, um, they do not lure the middle class, they create the middle class. So, so just take a moment and look at these numbers. Um, the, uh, the US averages are at the bottom, notice, um, None, these are the 10 largest cities of the day, none of them had a higher concentration of poor people than the nation as a whole. All of them had median family incomes above the national average. All of them had higher concentrations of well-to-do people defined by incomes over $5,000 in, in 1950 uh, than the national average, without exception. Um, Virtually tied for the richest cities in the country, Chicago and Detroit. I said Detroit. Um, so things have changed. Um, New York and Cleveland are neck and neck. Cleveland. Um, so uh, this, is, this is where we, uh, we were at, at the middle of the last century. And, and again, cities were working well. And uh, as, as Jane Jacobs said, they're at the core of a flourishing, prospering society. Not perfect, but working, uh, and working in a transformative fashion. Uh, then things started to slide. And then by the time I start um, um, reaching my, my uh, ambition of, of 
living in cities and so forth in, in the 70s, we've, we've got some serious problems. Um, there was not only flight from central cities, but um, cities didn't just lose population, they, they became dysfunctional as they lost population. Um, or maybe they lost population as they became dysfunctional is a better way of, of putting it. Um, especially but not exclusively in the older cities of the East and the North in what was becoming known as the Rust Belt, uh, most economic and social measures of um, quality of life were in decline from 1950 onward um, through 1980. And, and the 70s were sort of a, a watershed period where uh, scholars like Banfield were writing books like The Unheavenly City and Hollywood was on, on the, the, the case with uh, um, dramatizations of rampant crime and, and cities were under fiscal siege. <laughs> Um, uh, the dictionary quote, I, I actually, for, for the book, I, I was looking at dictionary definitions of cities year by year from World War II onward, and, and the, the definitions got progressively darker, progressively more pessimistic about uh, what was going on. The, um, uh, by the time I started teaching about cities and, and writing about urban policy, scholars and commentators had identified a lengthy list of perpetrators of the crimes against urbanity. And this is, this is the basic list here. I've, uh, I've broken them down into two categories, the immutable trends and the malignant forces. Um, there are many more subcategories that you could identify. Uh, there are many more villains that have been articulated, library shelves grown with books uh, written about who, who wrecked uh, uh, the city and, and so forth. Um, the, uh, the subcategories uh, probably have some, uh, some subtlety that are, that's not conveyed in a slide like this. Um, the racism took a lot of um, forms. It wasn't just flight. In many cases, it was uh, restricted access to credit, redlining uh, by banks, uh, in some cases guided by federal policy and so forth. Uh, there are all of these things that, that were... Uh, blamed and were, were um, uh, defined as causative forces for decline. And um, the thing is, if you look at these, these factors that have been identified uh, in, in the scholarship, it can create a certain amount of hopelessness about the, um, the possibilities of cities. Um, those immutable forces and malig uh, malignant forces and immutable trends just seem like, well, how are we ever going to change this? How are, how are we ever going to turn cities around? We're doomed. Um, so it became popular among opinion leaders and academics and not just comedians um, to, write, to write a lot of cities off, um, to speak of managed decline, uh, to recommend policies that encouraged outmigration by residents, uh, right-sizing of cities, um, it was widely believed that, that many cities were just uh, uh, obsolete, that there were some cities that were going to grow and there were other cities that were just going to die and, and dry up and blow away. So I'm here to be more optimistic. I'm here to say that I don't share this pessimistic view. Um, Boomtowns uh, argues that um, we should be optimistic about the fate of every American city. The, pre the preface is titled, Even Detroit. Um, I believe that every city can get healthy and thrive and grow and be transformative again if it gets some fundamentals right. So to do this over the last 43 years, I've had to uh, gather a lifetime's worth of data. Steve's right, I did assemble the data and do the writing 
in his carol in the Hopkins Library. Thanks for that. Um, but um, the, the key thing is by watching the slow motion data evolve, I, I noticed that some cities were not declining, even though the immutable trends and the malignant forces seemed to be every bit as present there as anywhere else. So they weren't really explaining some of the cross-sectional evidence that, that was evolving. And then there were some cities that had, that had been in decline, and then they turned around. And they, they turned around without changing any of those immutable forces or, or malig uh, malignant forces or immutable trends. It was like, well, the, the usual explanations don't seem to be complete. There's, there's, a, there's some more explanatory power in something out there. Also, cities, some cities turned around without really changing anything um, to make the quality of life better in a visible way. I, I hear all the time that, well, we've got to have better schools, and then people will come back. Or we've got to have safer streets, and then people will come back. Some cities turned around without doing anything fundamental in those regards. So what's going on? Well... My argument is that in, in, in the turnaround cities, in the, in, the, in the boom towns that happened after 1980, um, they had secured some key property rights. They had encouraged new investment and capital formation that is, I think, the key determinant or a key determinant of urban health. So I'm going to present a little fragment of time series evidence here to try to illustrate that point. So here's, here's four cities of somewhat similar demographic uh, uh, industrial nature um, in, the, in the three decades uh, after World War II. They're all in decline. They're all, they're all manifesting problems. People are voting with their feet in each, in each and every one of them. Um, they're either leaving for nearby suburbs or they're getting out of the metro area uh, entirely. Um, so I was, I was in Boston the green line, and uh, I'm, I'm one of these people that was getting out. I was, I was migrating to another metropolitan area entirely. I, I blame my high school guidance counselor. He advised all of us. He said, uh, I went to an all-boys high school. He said, boys, there's no future here. Go west, young man. Um, and, um, you know, we saw how, how good a forecaster he was, uh, or we'll see in the next slide. Um, all of, all of these cities were, were uh, doing exactly the thing that those immutable trends and malignant forces predicted would happen, that they were emptying out, they were becoming poorer, they were becoming less transformative, they were uh, suffering from rising crime and so forth as, as population fell and as poverty grew, and they, all of them were experiencing greater fiscal strain. Then something happens. You notice shortly after I left Boston, it started to grow again. Uh, Oakland, you know, part of the argument about the transformative forces was that, uh, um, you know, people are moving to the Sun Belt. They like good weather. Well, Oakland, Oakland is in the Sun Belt. They've always had good weather. And it was shrinking for a while, and then it, it grew for a while after 1980. Boston grew after 1980. Other cities didn't, though. So, you know, the question would be, well, what's going on? Um, how, how did these immutable trends and malignant forces explain this? Those things are sort of constants, but here we've got variation that those constants can't explain. I mean, did, did, um, did people in Oakland decide, yeah, for a while we like suburban living and grass and trees and driving cars everywhere, but now we're going to move back because we've decided we don't like it? Or did people in Boston, did racism evaporate in Boston but not in Baltimore or Cleveland? All of these forces that are present but are constant 
are not explaining, explaining this um, intertemporal variation. So what, what, does, what does explain it? How did they pull it off? How did, how did some cities grow and some cities, um, or why did, why did some cities not share in it? If, if we had changed our tastes for suburban living or if we had become less racist as a society, we could say, oh, I'll well, see that those, that typical narrative about the immutable uh, trends and so forth, see, it, it explains the change, but it, I don't think we can explain it. But there was, a, there was something else going on at the time that, that was sort of a, a, a nice natural experiment that we were doing across the country. And we had a revolutionary. We had this guy, one of the most unlikely looking revolutionaries uh, you will ever see. And I would submit someone who deserves a lot of credit as one of the greater uh, uh, initiators of urban renewal in American history. That's Howard Jarvis. So in the 70s, Jarvis is a retired businessman and, and he lives in California and property taxes are killing him and killing all his neighbors in California because you've got inflationary times and you've got high property tax rates in a lot of the California cities. So he, go, he embarks on a campaign, a tax revolt, for roughly a decade, he's wildly unsuccessful. And then in 1978, he gets a, an initiative on the ballot, Proposition 13, that's going to cap property taxes at 1% across the entire state. And everybody, you know, the, it, it's going to be an apocalypse if Proposition 13 passes. If you read what, what <coughs> urban leaders and political leaders throughout the state had said, you would have believed that, that there would be, you know, kind of a Mad Max type of uh, 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 state of California at, at if it passed, uh, my favorite quote, uh, I was in L.A. at the time, and the, and the Los Angeles mayor, Tom Bradley, said, this will hit the city like a neutron bomb. It will leave some city facilities standing virtually empty and human services devastated. And there are there lots of other similar quotes. But it passes. It passes uh, almost two to one. And um, it's immediately transformative um, in a way that I will illustrate in a second. In 1980, it's imitated in Massachusetts with Proposition 2.5. And, and in, in various other states, it, it's imitated in various other times. In each case, cities recapitalized and repopulated in the aftermath of such tax caps. Let's, let's take one case example. Here's San Francisco. So the, the, the pink line is their declining population for the three decades prior to 1980. It kind of shocks people to hear that San Francisco was was emptying out in that in that period and, and was a dysfunctional city. Uh, there are some nice quotes in the book uh, uh, from people who were despairing about San Francisco's uh, decline. Um, it was very popular among hippies. I, I visited in graduate school and, and hung out in Haight-Ashbury for a little while, and it, it was kind of cool because there's a for. For some populations, like us graduate students and hippies, cheap, dilapidated housing and, and, and uh, uh, a decaying city, you know, that can be attractive in some sense. But uh, for most people, it was, it was becoming progressively less uh, attractive. And the population losses were mirrored or, or were, uh, yeah, were mirrored in the sense that they were moving in the opposite direction by San Francisco's property tax rate. Between 1950 and 1975, San Francisco doubled its property tax rate and lost 100,000 citizens. Now, economists know when the property tax rate goes up, the value of property being taxed goes down. This is called tax capitalization, and there's a lot of evidence for it in the scholarly literature. A higher tax liability cools buyer's jets for your property, so you take a capital loss when the property tax rate goes up. 
A few economists have argued that this has no importance for a city's well-being because once a higher future tax liability has led to discounted prices, it should not affect future homeowners' willingness to locate there. Current owners are out some dough, but no worries. That's just a one-time capital loss. Now, this is incorrect. If you're a homeowner, you know that you're constantly having to invest and reinvest in your house. And if, if you're taxed at a high rate on reinvestment, then, then you suffer continuous capital losses. And note also, here, here's probably the more important reason that, this, that, that property taxes cause, cause capital uh, flight and eventually population flight. So in this 25-year period, 50 to 75, San Francisco raised property taxes 18 times in 25 years. So they subjected their residents to not just one-time capital losses, but to repeated capital losses. And each time, that's a piecemeal expropriation of somebody's property. That's a piecemeal um, taking of the value of their property. So after a while, you get tired of that. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me 18 times, shame on me. Um, so people start, they, the, there's a much reduced propensity to invest, and there's a much increased propensity to flee. And that's, what, that's exactly what San Francisco saw. Three decades of flight and decay until Proposition 13 kicks in and, in effect, saves San Francisco from itself. Um, at a 1% tax rate, it not only improves your cash flow, but the fact that this rate is capped and is politically inviolable and unchangeable means that if you're a capitalist, you're safe in San Francisco again. So you'll start to invest and reinvest in San Francisco. No, no political culture change needed. You just have to know that if you're building a skyscraper that's going to last 100 years, no one can expropriate a portion of that property by raising property taxes at will over the life of that, uh, that asset. This is a very good thing. It's also a very good thing for San Francisco's government. Here's, here's their budget. So yeah, when you, when you cut the property tax rate from 3% to 1%, you, you forego some property tax receipts. In addition, Prop 13 cut property tax uh, assessments back to 1975 levels. Um, but what happened was, as population flooded back and as incomes grew and as reinvestment occurred, um, the tax base grew rapidly, and within four years, in real inflation-adjusted terms, San Francisco's real tax receipts exceeded their pre-Prop 13 level by almost two-thirds. There was a huge fiscal dividend here. So San Francisco now spends more per capita by a large uh, uh, multiple than they did before Prop 13. Again, they, the, the progressive government can go about its business of doing progressive things, but in effect, the, the, the tax cap, I would refer to this as, as, a, as guardrails on the progressive road. San Francisco can be ruled by progressives uh, as long as uh, San Francisco wants to be, but capitalists can say, well, but there are limits to how much of my property can be expropriated. My property rights in my physical capital are secure. So the lesson here, here is that um, capital is very important to cities. We're, we, um, we need to adopt, I think, a more capital-centric view of cities. Um, we, we, we actually define cities by counting people, because it's easy to count people. Um, we, we define a geographic area. We count the people in that geographic area. If they cross a certain threshold, we say, that's a city. 
Um, I think we need to stop doing that and see cities not as dense concentrations of people. We need to see cities as dense concentrations of capital around which people gather, to which people are attracted. So that leads to my argument number one, that the health of a city's capital stock determines its destiny as much or perhaps more than any of the aforementioned uh, 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 usual suspects, the immutable trends and the, um, uh, the malignant forces. That when you, see, when you see a city turn around, either going forward or going backward, it's probably because they've done something to alter the, uh, the attractiveness as an investment climate for capital in all its forms. Not just physical, like, you, like is shown there, but financial capital flows, human capital creation, and also very, very much important to, to uh, social welfare, uh, social capital. If, if you want to damage a city, um, attack the property rights to the flows of benefits from these forms of capital. If you want to improve a city, secure the returns that flow from these forms of capital. So that's argument number two. If you want a healthy city, secure, secure the property rights to the various forms of capital that, that are important to the residents of a city that determine their productivity, that determine the quality of their lives. Secure those property rights and you will invite investment and you will, you will uh, develop a much more abundant and higher quality capital stock. And that will enhance everybody's productivity at work and it will make their leisure hours more pleasurable and it will overall lead to a higher quality of life. If you want to make cities work well, you've got to attract this abundant investment in, in the various forms of capital. And to do that, you've got to secure the property rights. If we fail to secure these rights, the city's stock of capital will erode due to underinvestment. When San Francisco tax, taxed its physical capital at 3% per year rather than 1%, it found that the owners of this capital let it decay and become less productive. Over time, that displeased residents, many of whom fled, and impoverished workers, and damaged the quality of life. But when property rights are secure and capital investment is encouraged, we observe a chain reaction as a healthy and growing capital stock attracts more people and produces synergies and agglomeration effects that further enhance growth. But the good news, the reason that this is such an optimistic approach to, to urban policy, is that you can secure or enhance property rights without waiting for changes in those immutable trends or, or malignant forces. It would be nice if some of those malignant forces were changed. It would be nice if some of the immutable trends could be changed, but we don't have to wait around to improve uh, uh, the quality of life in cities for that to happen. We need to create a secure property rights environment, and then a lot of the rest of the symptoms will, uh, will evaporate. Securing the value of physical capital by capping property tax rates is just one among many ways that cities can avoid damaging their residents' property rights and risking uh, flight and decay. Boomtowns has many more, a few of which are briefly summarized on this slide. Some have to do with labor institutions, some with proper stewardship of the capital that we own in common with each other, such as our streets and parks or other public assets. And some, perhaps the most important, have to do with an invisible form of capital, social capital that we create by forming networks with other city dwellers that have all too often been ignored and thus destroyed in efforts to renew some city neighborhoods. My goal throughout uh, this discussion and in, in writing the book has been to suggest politically practical approaches to change. I'm not naive. Bad policies have constituencies, and often these are simply stronger than the forces for good. With growth, however, there's usually a path to a win-win outcome. 
In addition, Boomtowns uh, contains 10 guiding principles, which I immodestly call boom commandments, by which any urban policy might be evaluated. In these brief remarks, we've only had time to illustrate the first commandment, but I'm hopeful that I've teased you enough to want to read the book and see what else should be on our agenda if we want to restore the urban American dream, not just in places like Boston or San Francisco, but everywhere. Thanks for your, your attention. Thank you. Steve, thank you. I can hardly wait for the other nine commandments, but <laughs> maybe we'll cover some of those in the Q&A session. Uh, before I introduce our first commenter, uh, Professor Wagner, uh, I did forget one little thing, and that is in terms of collaborating with Steve, we've, we've written many things together, and, and the most recent one actually is in Regulation Magazine, the fall 2014 issue, how to make medicine safe and cheap so you can pick up a, a free copy, I, I think, as you uh, leave the, the auditorium or Nick, or the, is a supply out there yeah, in abundance? They're, they're uh, uh, they haven't gone like hotcakes. Uh, <laughs> in any case, uh, we're, we're active collaborators and current uh, collaborators. Uh, I'm also a current collaborator with our next speaker, uh, Professor Richard Wagner. Dick and I have, have known each other for quite some time. And if we go back to the beginning, uh, many moons ago, uh, Dick received a PhD from the University of Virginia when the University of Virginia's economics department was at its, shall we say, high water mark. Uh, Presently, uh, Dick is the Holbert L. Harris Professor of Economics at George Mason University. Uh, Dick is, is really the man I call if I want to know anything about public finance or public choice scholarship, and, and Dick can attest to the many uh, <coughs> telephone calls I filed in, in, in his direction. Uh, as I said, we uh, are, are friends and have collaborated on, on several things. One, we were members of the Financial Advisory Council of the United Arab Emirates uh, during the same period of time uh, with, uh, among other people, Bob Mundell. Actually, there were just three of us, but Bob, Bob was, was one of the threesome at that time. And as a result of being close in and, and, and watching a city boom, an amazing boom city, Dubai, uh, Dick and I wrote a paper, quite a long paper, which is uh, awaiting my, <clears throat> shall we say, final touches. <laughs> it, it, the, 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 the birth of this one hasn't been 43 years, but it's been, <laughs> it's, it's approaching <laughs> more years than it should. Uh, the title of that paper is Two Systems of Public Finance, Entrepreneurial and Parasitical. And I, Dick might even allude to that in his comments about uh, Steve Walter's book, uh, Boomtowns. But with that, Dick, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Steve, ladies and gentlemen. And yes, the theme of that paper is pertinent to uh, Steve's book and my remarks on that book. 
I think it's a terrific book. I recommend that you uh, look at it. I think his, his approach, his capital-centric approach, a property rights-centric approach, that the uh, main sort of problems to be confronted in terms of cities as being uh, generally flourishing, transformative places resides, number one, in greater security of private property rights in, in, in cities, and number two, resides in uh, better uh, care for the public properties, the public spaces that are also an important part of the, what is after all a, a humanity is always, as a form of social animal, involves a lot of close living together in, in, in tight spaces. And, uh, and so we all constitute a commons, and so the good order of the public commons is the second of facet of the uh, property rights approach that Steve developed. So I don't want to stand here and simply praise the book uh, because it's it's easy to do. Uh, but there's nothing, I don't have anything I care to complain about either. And so rather than quit, no academic would quit after uh, about a minute. And so what I want to do is he asks this book to carry an awful lot of weight. And so what I want to do is try and build a bit of a flying buttress to try to help or add support to the weight that Steve asked his argument to uh, carry. And somewhat ironically, I want to bring the sources for the construction of that buttress, uh, trace them back to Jane Jacobs. Now, ironically, because Steve talks about and makes great use of Jacobs's uh, death and life of great American cities. I would uh, like to construct my flying buttress by making reference to three uh, later works of Jane Jacobs. The first being Cities and the Wealth of Nations. What is the theme of Cities and the Wealth of Nations? It's that if you want to look for the wealth of nations, you don't look at the national level. You look at the local level, at the city level that she's a bottom-up, you might say, kind of theorist, that uh, if the conditions are right for flourishing within cities, nations are going to flourish. They aren't going to flourish if you start at the national level and try to impose uh, from the top down. And so I think that's a theme. It's a Jane Jacobs theme. I think it's one that very much supports uh, Steve's line of argument. The second piece from Jane Jacobs I would... Uh, recommend to Steve and to you is a little book is actually in the form of a dialogue amongst a set of people called Systems of Survival. And what that book argues is that uh, good uh, social systems require a kind of an interaction, a form of interaction among carriers of two kinds of moral syndromes, which she calls the commercial and the guardian. Now, this distinction between the commercial and the guardian is not exactly the same as the distinction between uh, commerce and politics, uh, because you can have a genuine commerce in politics as well as guardianship in commerce. For instance, construction firms have to protect themselves against uh, uh, people who are working who might convert uh, firm assets to their own 
home building of a garage by bringing home materials. And so they have various kinds of uh, monitoring, auditing, and so forth requirements that are, that's a guardian kind of activity. But the point anyway that Jagans would make is that well-working social systems require a structured, appropriately structured relationship among carriers of the commercial and the guardian syndromes. She also, in that same little work, then mentions, well, what happens if these, uh, if you get too much commingling between the two types of carriers? And that's what she describes as monstrous moral hybrids, which I will come back to in just a moment. The monstrous moral hybrids then leads me then to her third book I have in mind, uh, uh, a little piece called Dark Age Ahead. And I think Dark Age Ahead is, you might say, is a characterization of what perhaps lies ahead if the monstrous moral hybrids uh, get too far out of hand, and which is the dark side of what uh, Steve was talking about. So I think these <laughs> three things, I think, all by Jane Jacobs, uh, can uh, lead to further lines of thought that I think very much would uh, uh, carry, carry along and join in on his effort, what he's trying to explain about the problems that he face and the opportunities also that they face, but what must be done for cities genuinely to uh, 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 become boom towns. Now, going back to the monstrous moral hybrids, I think what you have here is uh, what that amounts to is what I've and other things have referred to as an entangled system of political economy. What do I mean by an entangled system of political economy? Well, of course, you probably know that physicists talk about quantum entanglement, and I'm not wanting to go there, but, it's, but, but there's a relationship in the sense that quantum entanglement is a place where particles do not, you, one particle's position is not independent of another's, but the two, you can't reference one position of one particle without referencing another. What I mean when it comes to uh, entangled political economy, to say that the classical scheme of natural liberty, you might say, is one that people, by and large, are free to make their own judgments in, in respect to their commercial activities. And what, uh, what governments largely are involved in is, is maintaining the kind of system of order uh, within which uh, commercial activities take place. And so there's a kind of a separation between commerce and government that, uh, whereas, uh, within entanglement, these days, you can't really talk about sensible commercial action without asking about what's the government's going to be doing with respect to that action. And likewise, you can't talk about sensible, prudent political action without asking, well, how is this going to affect important commercial interests uh, with which you deal? And so what happens increasingly is that commerce becomes politics and politics becomes commerce. And I think as very much as is that uh, uh, monstrous moral hybrid that Jane Jacobs uh, talked about. For instance, um, uh, commercial lending institutions cannot conduct their business without uh, simply by following good, prudent business practices, uh, which would mean that they would actually, they would create portfolios that they thought would maximize or optimize the value of their portfolios independently of what any particular political authority wished them to do. And what, rather than what we have are arrangements where political authorities then 
have requirements as to what the portfolios of, of commercial lending institutions should look like. And that's uh, just one of many of, of the commingling of the commercial and the uh, political activities. Adam Smith uh, one time said that, and it's related to Steve's theme, that a flourishing society is easy to articulate in principle. It requires satisfaction of three conditions. Peace, easy taxes, and a reasonable administration of justice. Peace, easy taxes, a reasonable administration of justice. That doesn't seem too hard. Uh, but yet uh, the evidence is it's not at all uh, such an easy thing to do. And this gets into these some very knotty, deep issues about the entanglement between liberty and, and democracy and governments as agents of, of supporting liberty versus agents of undermining it. And both of those things uh, are possible outcomes as are this country's founders recognized. You might recall at the conclusion of the American Constitutional Convention, Benjamin Franklin was asked by someone what kind of government did you folks uh, create in there? And he said, we created a republic if you can keep it, if you can keep it. I think the evidence says we haven't kept it. Uh, it's not totally gone, but it's not uh, uh, quite kept either, which shows that Franklin himself was the number one, was an evolutionary theorist at heart, that he thought just because something existed at one time doesn't mean it's going to continue. Whether it continues or not depends upon what uh, people do within a framework where eternal vigilance is, in fact, the price of liberty. And is that price of liberty too high or not? Well, that's a question that gets into also what Steve was talking about with his, his uh, Ten Commandments. Uh, it's, it's one thing to state them. It's another thing to be able to uh, execute them. Uh, I think as most academics, I'd say it's easier to state than it is to execute. Uh, uh, but in any event, I certainly encourage you to read Steve's book. It's a very important piece of work. It articulates its themes nicely. And uh, it also reminds us that, uh, yes, indeed, uh, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, and uh, it's something we all need to work on. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dick. Um, our next speaker is Mark Zupan. And uh, Mark is a, uh, I'm familiar with Mark's works, uh, starting with work he d has done on water resources. And also, he has two textbooks in microeconomics. But uh, in looking over your bio, I, I was struck by the fact that you received a BA degree from Harvard University and a PhD from MIT. And it, the Harvard thing does remind me of a Bill Niskanen story. Bill received his BA from Harvard also, as you might recall. And Bill, I, I asked him, I said, well, how, well, how was it anyway? And, and Bill said, well, Harvard produces more good and more bad economists than any other institution in the United <laughs> States. Now, we have a good one here uh, in Mark, fortunately. Uh, Mark's an uh, Olin professor of economics at Rochester and a visiting scholar at Cato in residence at present. And uh, uh, also, I might add, uh, the, the guy's still standing, and he was a dean at uh, 
also at the University of Arizona, as well as the Simon School at Rochester for Simon School, I think roughly about 10 years, something like that. So at any rate, the guy is uh, <laughs> a survivor, shall we say. Um, with that, I think, uh, Mark, the floor is yours. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Steve mentioned uh, water research. And when I was at USC as a faculty member for the first time, was doing some work along those lines. And the Alumni Association said, well, we've got this group in Bakersfield that'd be interested in hearing your work of how water should be priced more on market forces. And when you have a group of about 100 alums show up with pickups and rifles with uh, uh, got kidded by colleagues when I came back that my research was getting a lot too relevant for my own good. <laughs> like Dick, I um, want to commend uh, first and foremost Steve on an impressive book. Uh, it's well worth reading. And what I would like to do in my comments, uh, why these issues matter, what are the high points of the work? Uh, second, to look at uh, further work that lies ahead, because I think he's tapped into a rich vein uh, that could add to our knowledge and to improving the well-being of uh, countless individuals in this country and elsewhere. Uh, point in particular, then, to one important way I think the work uh, can be strengthened uh, going forward. And then last, come back to... Uh, why the issues he's on to, I think, are especially important. The meta question that really lies. Mark, you just have 10 minutes. Got it. We'll try to cover quickly. <laughs> um, at its core, why it's to be commended, um, uh, Steve will point to their important pecuniary, non-pecuniary advantages. There's some natural inclinations. Uh, the opportunities they provide economically. Uh, Michael Porter will talk about the other non-pecuniary amenities, why naturally, and we're social animals, why cities have advantages. And uh, some of the same things that Adam Smith uh, stood about uh, when you look at the wealth of nations also apply to the wealth of cities. And Adam Smith's famous quote about what, what makes sense in a household can scarce be folly in the case of kingdoms. And what Steve's onto is a rich laboratory, a set of experiments that we can learn from. And he basically argues that you can't artificially uh, create growth and prosperity through light rail, uh, through public housing, through stadiums, that it has to be more uh, genuine. And closes with Ten Commandments uh, along with don't steal, don't lie, and won't uh, tease you. Any. Well, the rest will leave for you to discover. The strongest part of the book is the individual examples, and Steve highlighted some of those in his slides. When you have a case like Boston, where other cities in 1910 to 1930 are starting to increase in population in Boston due to the administration of uh, Mayor Curley, uh, starts to go in reverse. Or San Francisco and Oakland uh, that are sliding until Prop 13 passes and then show an alternative trend. Or Boston with the same hockey stick uh, change that occurs around the time of Proposition 2.5, or how Oklahoma City starts to take off in 2001 after passage of right-to-work legislation. A ditto for Boise in 1986. The growth of Charlotte. 
and the growth of Indianapolis, uh, that in 1930 was a quarter of Detroit size and now is 16% larger, and median household income is 54% greater. So it's a rich uh, panoply of case studies that point to property rights mattering and where institutions are appropriately designed, where they're designed to attract and nurture uh, private property and innovation, uh, cities flourish. The opposite when they don't. Where more work is needed, uh, and it's hard work because disentangling these effects is difficult. Uh, most of the decline occurs, as Steve pointed out, between 1950 and 1980. And there are a lot of factors that are shooting uh, at the victim uh, that we need to disentangle from were cities becoming more predatory uh, over that time period or immediately preceding. Um, the growth of the automobile development of in, uh, networks of transportation, uh, what's happening in the public school system, and the work of Carolyn Minter Hoxby and how school districts are becoming more monopolized, where that really starts to kick in and will encourage people and the cars provide the means to, to, uh, to flee. So looking at that time period, how can we better disentangle, I think is a rich area of further work. Ditto from just the past five years, we've seen an apparent trend to move back into cities. And there are a variety of explanations that one could give why that's going on. And I think uh, in the end, there's some rich evidence that could be brought to bear. Is it rising oil prices until recently that have uh, increase the cost of commuting from suburbs? Are people marrying later? Is it um, the private sector unionization has started to decline and so some of the negative effects that we observed in the 50s through 80s are going away due to greater international competition? To what extent is the rise of a creative class that places a greater value on diversity and less racism than was the case, uh, the work of somebody like Richard Florida? Universities also play a role. They're disproportionately located um, in some of our older cities and Millikan Institute studies that'll show how much of the growth nowadays is occurring in areas that are blessed with universities, especially as those enterprises grow and nowadays recently with uh, the rapid uh, increase of international students. So there's a lot there I think that could be used. If, if I had to point to one smoking gun, this just what my gut tells me. Um, and this is where I would also then say the work can be strengthened. What Steve focuses on is um, what cities do to discourage investment uh, through taxes and other predatory behavior. But would argue that the thing that deserves more attention, it's not just what they do on the tax side, but what they do on the spending side and how they use those funds because it's not just uh, detracting people or, or chasing them away, but you're also chasing away people that with skin in the game could do a lot for your community. And this is where I think it's a testable hypothesis over the last few years as the folks that are moving into cities, when they start marrying and have kids, Joel Kotkin will argue they will start gravitating toward the suburbs. And would would argue that that'll give us a very testable hypothesis to what extent is it our K through 12 system 
that chased people out of the cities in the 50s through the 80s. Uh, now, perhaps of the downturn and less means to afford housing and cities' investment also in infrastructure, it's lured them back in. But to what extent will we see that same phenomenon? Surveys uh, apparently tell us that we'll see the same movement, uh, largely due to K through 12 systems. My own hometown, our city's uh, school budget is larger than the city budget and the county budget. Uh, the average student, uh, we spend 25000 per student per year. Our most expensive private school is 19000 a year. And yet 40% of the people graduate uh, from our public K-12 through system. And even I think some of the quotes that Steve's used in the book uh, where people justify why they're moving, they'll point to the school system. So I would argue where we take skin out of the game, what we spend money and how we spend it as a public entity also has a and it's in line with this argument. It's, it's the flip side, but can be used to, to strengthen the argument. Now, last, uh, why this is a meta question, because it does go back to Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations. Why do certain uh, localities succeed and others not? Uh, there's always time, either in the corporate sphere or in the public sphere, where screw-ups happen. My hometown also is a great example with Kodak, where you, you develop vested interests that it becomes hard to unlock and the damage that gets done. Uh, competition has a way of disciplining it. Uh, there is a market for corporate control. Strategies aren't working. Uh, you pay unseemly amounts, but at least you get new people and new strategies that get tested out. When you look at the public sphere, um, would argue that some of those same disciplinary mechanisms are missing. And, and when you do a whodunit, and Steve had a slide there, is it greed? Is it some other factor? Those same questions, when we look at why nations run aground, uh, people will blame ignorance, uh, like a Jeff Sachs. Uh, people will blame geography, like a Jared Diamond. Uh, to me, the most convincing argument nowadays is it's the institutions we choose. And that's where Steve aptly highlights the um, pivotal importance of institutions in cities. Uh, and so somebody like Anachimoglu and Robinson, why, why nations fail, has, I think, direct bearing on his research. Uh, and would particularly argue, uh, as economists and political scientists, we've blamed producers for capturing the system, uh, from Karl Marx to right-wing economists like George Stigler. Uh, well, we've, then we've expanded our model to consumers or ideological interest groups, environmentalists. But would argue that what we really need to do is pry inside the black box that's on the supply side of policymaking. We've assumed, we've assumed that these individuals either behave idealistically or just weigh competing bids from different interest groups. That government and its leaders are its self-interests. And the roles they play, uh, 100 years ago, we had great man, great woman theories. But that has a flip side. <laughs> uh, if they can extract rents from the process. And, and that's where I would also encourage Steve long run to think about solutions. Uh, it may not just be one of ignorance, that we just publish benchmarking. We tell people to do franchise bidding. Uh, we <clears throat> tell people that we need, like Indianapolis, which is an, uh, one of his great case studies a more unified government approach across counties. I could come up with other examples where a more unified government leads to more monopoly control, and it's been 
perverted uh, to its intentions. The biggest danger, and this is what Madison and our founders worry about, you got to set up a government, but then how do you control the governed? It's hard to do buyout packages in the political arena. Uh, you can't, uh, and it's hard to write promises. And Indianapolis can say, we'll lure you here. But what's to keep the next mayor or the next city council to say, well, that was what they promised you. Uh, today's a new day. So the meta questions and just plaudits for tackling them. Thank you, Mark. Um, just a footnote, Steve and I did look into this. Rochester does have one of the highest property tax rates in uh, the state of New York, but uh, never mind. Uh, <laughs> you can deal with that later when, when, when you go back, if, you, if they ever dig out of the snow. Uh, before we start the question and answer session, uh, this isn't on my uh, guide uh, that Jim Dorn gave me instructions for the chairman. Uh, let, let's give uh, Steve maybe two minutes to, if you want to make any responses to either Dick or, or, or Mark, or, or maybe you don't. I uh, don't know. I, I will pick up uh, on one strain. Let's, that, let's uh, keep it to, keep it to two, two yeah, minutes, yeah. please. Uh, and it's really an invitation, I, and I appreciate your comments about ways to keep the dialogue going and, and uh, buttress the, uh, some of the arguments. And I just want to make an invitation to the audience. Um, I mean, we'll have a nice Q&A here, but one of the things I hope you all go out of the room with is um, an invitation to do work in this area where um, I mean, I'm an old guy, and I'm not going to be able to do much more research to buttress this case and, and so forth. I'm not going to be able to gather a lot of the detailed econometric data that will actually prove some of these principles. So what I'm really inviting, and, and, and uh, Mark and, and Dick were also, I think, inviting uh, to, uh, people to do now is to say, well, instead of some of the normal um, empirical research that we do about cities, let's step back, let's take a longer view. Now, this is really hard work to do because if you're, if you're going to assemble data over decades instead of you know, a, a little panel of a few years, it takes, it's, it's painstaking work. And I'm just hoping that some of you in, in government research or in academic research circles, either you or, or you encourage your students and, and you mentor others to, to start thinking about, well, look for key institutions that changed, key property rights changes, and then start to say, well, maybe, maybe there's a different narrative that can emerge about why, how cities change, and, and now let's do the, the work that will give this academic respectability and, and uh, to some extent, proof. And then, then we can use that to guide policy uh, in future. So, I mean, I really hope that um, some of these remarks have, have made you think, yeah, we're, we're, we're maybe looking in some of the wrong areas for what what has, has gone on and what might be going on today in, in cities. So thanks, guys, for, for the helpful comments. Okay, let, let's open the floor for questions and answers. If you could uh, wait for the microphone so we, we've got good audio, and also uh, uh, state your name and affiliation. And we've got more, more or less, let's say, Little over 20 really good solid minutes. So I'll, I'll call on right now, first, first hand up. 
floor okay. is yours. Thank you. Uh, my name is Steve. I work and study here in the city. Uh, fantastic panel. Awesome stuff. Maybe starting with um, Professor Walters, could you examine D.C.? Um, since uh, I guess pretty much I've spent most of my life in the area, it's, it's gone from, uh, I guess, the, the District of Crack to the District of Cranes for all intents and purposes. When I was a kid, you know, violence was such that sort of like the first few minutes of uh, Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, you know. Um, and now there's a lot of mixed-use development. Uh, when I was a kid, the, um, the football team was pretty decent. Now they suck. I mean, I guess the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, and, um, and it's an education mecca and an IT mecca to a degree also. So could you look at it in that sense? Um, thank you. Thank you. Did you say your name was Steve? That's right. Got a lot of Steves here. Well, welcome, <laughs> no. Steve. Well, um, and also, point of uh, irony, um, I'm a proud grad, undergrad of the uh, University of Virginia, and my lady uh, has a rat ring uh, from uh, MIT. So uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right. Small world. <laughs> Um, uh, good question. So I, a little story about Baltimore versus D.C. I was giving a speech about the need for property tax reform in Baltimore um, one time, and uh, there was a, a, a head of a foundation in the audience, and I could just tell he was scowling at me like he wasn't buying any of this stuff. And um, afterward, he wrote an email to me, and he said, well, you know, property taxes can't be that important. I mean, look at D.C., and so I did look at D.C., and it turns out that your property tax rate is 0.85%, and ours in Baltimore is 2.25%. So his argument was that he assumed that Washington, D.C. was an unfavorable uh, property tax environment just like Baltimore, because after all, we're neighbors. We must be doing things the same way. And it turns out that his argument about D.C. proved my case, that it was a very favorable environment for investment and, and there, were, there have been some tax reform efforts in, in D.C. over the years, and, and it's growing and flourishing. Um, a nearby neighbor, PG County, I did a, um, I did a, a public radio interview, and um, I was asked, well, how do you explain PG County? They have a tax cap, and the presumption was that somehow that was damaging the PG County economy or something like that. And I did, didn't really know any details about PG. So I, again, looked into it. Yes, they have a tax cap. They have a property tax rate under 1%. They are um, the wealthiest majority minority county in the United States. So they're doing okay, I would say. Uh, you know, but the nature of the question was, well, they're, you know, they're, actually the nature of both questions was, there are, there are flourishing areas where uh, capital investment isn't particularly well-treated. We assume that it's not well-treated in, in, in certain places. And you know, on, on close inspection, I, I've really never found a situation where treating capital badly has worked out well for anybody. And, and DC is a great example. It's, you know, it's, it's in a renaissance and it's growing. And you know, the, the, the thing about cities that grow rapidly and, and attract a lot of capital investment is you've actually got to let people build things after a while. Um, I mean, this gets into some of the other commandments really, but um, so things get expensive if you don't allow supply, re supply responses. So that's, that, I guess that would be the one caution I would have about these yeah, places. Steve, I, yeah, this, the, the PG County thing, I. I, of course, have Boomtowns uh, with me. And, and, and stuck in here, I have got an email that Walters had, had sent me uh, on August 15, 2014. And, and it was about PG County. And, and what you had, uh, Walters says in the, in the note he sent me, 
1977 Washington Post article noted that there was a net outmigration of 34,000 people in PG counties uh, between 1970 and 76. He says, then, then came the tax revolt led by two Democrats uh, and the outflow immediately was reversed after they put the ta after they reduced taxes and put the cap on. So it was it's a San Francisco Boston story all over again. I mean, you get a perfect event study and boom. So PG County, everything was going down. You put the tax re the tax revolt came down, mini Jarvis kind of thing. Only it wasn't a right wing Republican, it was, uh, it was, you know, standard Maryland Democrats uh, who'd had enough on the, on the tax thing and saw the light and, and it, it just turned right around. The next, next question. Anybody? Yes. Hi, my name is John Como. Um, one of the commandments John, on there. Where, I, where are you with? With the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development. Oh, good. Thank you. Um, one of the like, commandment, I think number six, was get big. Which, get big. Uh, that, that related to the, um, the Indianapolis case study. Okay. Because it seems like that would be, it would be hard for everybody to get big. Like California got big by lowering their taxes. But if every state had done that at the same time, nobody would have gone to California. Um, well, really, um, so it was a point about the possibility of scale economies in production in, in, um, in, urban, in the delivery of urban services and urban governance. So what Indianapolis did with Unigov was quite clever. Uh, it wasn't a, an unqualified success, but it was quite clever in that um, if, you, if you have a purchasing department, for example, and you have a small jurisdiction, you, can, you, you don't have necessarily have to redraw boundary lines. Like, so, for example, you might be familiar with David Rusk's you know, sort of metropolitan government approach that an annexation of territories is, is a way of broadening your tax base and increasing you know, the fiscal abilities of, of uh, city governments to solve problems. Um, you usually encounter political barriers to that. So what, what Indianapolis did was it formed partnerships between, across jurisdictional boundaries. And, and, and the, the basic idea what here was, well, there are some uh, purchasing economies, some, some scale economies in production. If, if you can, um, if, if there are two small jurisdictions and they both have offices that do purchasing of office supplies, say, or renting copiers or something, and, and they merge their, their their uh, operations, then you can save some cash. And um, so, so that getting big was just, um, this is you know, sort of econ 101, you know, micro principles sort of stuff. If there are scale economies in production in prospect and you refuse to consider them because you refuse to look across jurisdictional boundaries, you're wasting cash. And I guess as simple would, as that. Yeah, I would argue the that's from a economics productive um, side, but when you enter public choice considerations and the downsides to getting big, whether it's uh, some of the Hoxby evidence at the K through 12 levels where you have a LA unified school district and a third of the folks never see a student in their day-to-day -day, um, existence. But then also uh, nowadays uh, you look at some of the work by um, Robert Novi Marks and Jason Rao uh, one out of six workers in the U.S. works for state and local government. Um, 
we have a $5.5 trillion unfunded state and local government pension liability. In contrast to Krugman, who says Detroit's been an anomaly, they will argue it's a growing problem. It's bigger than Social Security. Uh, it's not as big as medical care obligations. When you create more monopoly power uh, on the worker side, that creates a vested interest that makes it hard to change institutions. Uh, those rents get capitalized. Unless you have an art museum you can sell <laughs> to try to facilitate uh, a better outcome, I think, than people anticipated in, in Detroit. But those, uh, those are, I think, are on the political side, some of the diseconomies of scale. Yeah. Thanks. Can we move down with the questions? We only have the back. Oh, here we go. Good. good. We're getting, getting down in the middle here. <laughs> I wonder if you can comment on the human capital aspects, because you look at the whole innovation economy, and as the Rochester example, the chemists weren't so good at transitioning to being computer scientists at Kodak. But I'd, I'd like to get a better understanding of your feelings on where the human capital side plays into all this. Well, I'll start. It looks like Mark wants to speak, speak to this, too. Um, so you're probably referencing uh, Ed Glazer's um, uh, and Richard Florida's uh, approach to this. So Richard Florida's book is the the creative class, and um, Ed Glazer is the Harvard urban economist who's who's spoken very uh, eloquently and and well about the the importance of human capital in in determining the destiny of cities. And I agree with that. I, I human capital, like social capital and physical capital and so forth. I think inviting, being receptive to investment and in, in, in accumulation of human capital in a, in a metro area is a, a key determinant of, his, of its success. The only thing that I think the Florida and the Glazer argument about human capital has missed is we humans love complementary forms of capital. If we are hostile, for example, to the formation of physical capital, if, if we, for example, tax it at, at uh, high rates relative to surrounding areas. I mean, the, the problem with San Francisco's 3% tax rate was that in the surrounding suburbs and in, in lower in the, in the Bay Area, the property tax rates were much lower. So, so those who held large amounts of human capital just refused to go to San Francisco because the physical capital that was so complementary to their lives, in other words, their, in some cases it was business uh, physical capital. In some cases, it was just residential. They would say, well, why would I build my dream home or why would I build my company where on an annual basis a very large chunk of it gets expropriated and, and where the risk of further expropriation, given this track record, is, is so great. So San Francisco was starving for the physical capital that would, would ultimately be attractive to the human capital that the, that the creatives have and I, I just think that's the, that's the only thing that I would, uh, if Ed Glazer were in the room, I would say, well, make sure you're attentive to all forms of, of capital in, in telling this story. And you know, the social capital story also needs, needs to be um, brought to bear here, where you know, there are these invisible social networks that we form in cities. And when we have these big footprint plans to say, oh, we're going to, you know, we've got a big project here. You all got to get out. We rend that social fabric, and we, d we discard an incredible, uh, uh, incredibly valuable stock of social capital. We've, we've just been, we haven't been attentive enough to how those property rights changes 
um, affect um, where people choose to locate. Human capital is highly mobile. And, and yeah, it's good. We, we've got to make sure that it, it is attracted and retained by virtue of you know, receptiveness to the, the, its complements. Next question, please. I go let's down in the front here, and then we'll come come back to the. I got you. Uh, Nick Farmer, retired uh, citizen. Uh, could you speak to the impact of technology on cities, either looking backwards, any particular technology that impacted decline or growth, and do you see any emerging technology? that's going to have either a good impact or a negative impact on uh, cities going forward? Um, you know, in this, uh, this 43-year data gathering uh, endeavor, uh, for most of those 43 years, I've been hearing that technology was hostile to city development, that we were all going to be working in our jammies in, in exurban or rural areas as a result of uh, technology. And and that you know we we'd all be skyping you know our 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 meetings and we'd all be telecommuting and so forth and that and that density was dead and cities cities were doomed as a result of this and and of course as time goes on it seems that to some extent the opposite is true that that high, in many high tech companies for example CEOs um, like Marissa Mayer and so forth are saying. No, come back to work. We actually need face-to-face -face contact. We need to do things like this: gather in a room and have incidental conversations that that are not scheduled. And we need um, so if if by technology, you know, uh, disruptor number one, internet and and uh, um, you know, telecom uh, evolution means that that we think that lower density. Um, development is is going to harm cities. I think what we found is the opposite is true. That they they make they seem to be making cities more important, bringing people together for these in, incidental uh, contacts. And and there are there are agglomeration effects and network externalities that seem to be facilitated by high density um, city life. And and so. Um, you know the, the superstar cities that we talk about these days are the densest cities. Um, the Bostons and the San Franciscos and the New Yorks and it, it, techno technology, as I understood your question, doesn't seem to be upsetting that in in the way that people thought way back, you know, in the '80s when we when we saw these technologies coming. Um, so I'm very optimistic about that too. I th I think density is is going to continue to to grow, and I think if if the fundamental factors for development remain um, healthy, I think then then cities will will continue to, to redensify. And I guess would add, um, have the same gut instincts that Steve does on technology, but also demography when we're trying to attract faculty. Uh, nowadays, you worry, especially if they're fresh out of graduate school, what the spouse or significant other. Uh, so as they're more two-earner couples, um, that plays to city strengths. So we'll lose young people to a Boston or a New York City because there are more opportunities in that agglomeration for both parts of the couple. And the technology, the uh, when video conferencing came about, uh, there were thoughts that airlines would go out of business. 
And then we saw some airlines actually invest in video conferencing. My own experience is it's made me more likely to get on planes because what the technology does is exposes me to more people globally. And then I need to figure out where is that contact going to have maximum value. So I've ended up in uh, some cities around the globe facilitated uh, by technology, both the one that was supposed to go out of business and the one that was supposed to be doing the driving out of business. Yeah, did, did you have a question? Yes. Yeah. By the way, you can address your questions to any of the panelists. We don't, we don't have to pick on Walters here, but go ahead. Uh, yes, my name is Miriam Gusevich. I'm a professor of architecture and urban design at Catholic University, and I'm very pleased to be here and, and to especially have you address uh, Jane Jacobs, who is one of my big heroes, heroines. Um, I guess I'd like to ask you about the role of the petite bourgeoisie, the sort of small, you know, shop owner in terms of what the culture of cities was in the 50s, as opposed to what happened in the 70s after urban renewal, when so many areas of major metropolitan, major cities through got you know, destroyed and how that affected mm -hmm. both economic and cultural capital in those areas. And so, because that's something to me that is very important in Jane Jacobs' view of the wealth of cities is the fact that there is not only the big capital, but that there is the small capital investments that is crucial. Right. Well, that's a great question. Um, I could go off on a rant for quite a few minutes about that, so so uh, hold me back. But um, so the Jane Jacobs, one of the chapters that I enjoyed most and and listened to, you know, sometimes on walks is is her discussion of social capital in her neighborhood with the the shop owners, as you say, taking keys for people and looking. Everybody knows. Well, we haven't seen Mrs. So and So lately. I wonder what's going on and so forth. And so she articulates uh, the the tremendous importance of social capital for the quality of our lives. And what you were articulating about urban renewal in the post-World War II era, and again, I invite the, the uh, uh, there's a research agenda in this. Um, so all of this social capital was invisible to people. What, what would happen is we would go into neighborhoods and we would look at the physical capital and we'd say, it's blighted, called the bulldozers. And we would tear things down because we assumed that uh, people of modest means who weren't, you know, uh, adhering to our standards about the proper upkeep of their physical capital that, that we needed to we needed to just destroy this. And and what we were not aware of is that they were knit together in incredibly complex ways, and they had formed a, a large stock of social capital that was non-transferable. And, and when the bulldozers came, they wiped out that social capital as well as the physical capital. I think there's an agenda there for anthropological researchers and sociological researchers, because a lot of the symptoms of uh, urban dysfunction that we see are, I think, a byproduct of destruction of this invisible social capital. When we, there was this great urban diaspora of 
oh, you know, we're going to we're going to build a big project here. You know, we've got Hopkins going, you know, with the East Baltimore Development Initiative and and oh, it, it's it's going to improve the neighborhood. But first, everybody's got to leave. Well, when we scatter everybody to the winds, we, we're destroying a, a tremendous, a, a tremendously valuable asset. And, you know, reading Jane Jacobs, you, you just appreciate how important this is. But yet it's not factored into real estate values because it's non-transferable. I mean, I, I can't sell you my house for more money uh, because I know everybody in the neighborhood because you won't. <laughs> and so it's it's a tough thing to 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 for planners and for redevelopers and re, you know urban renewal officials to 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 think about and they need to stop and and weigh that invisible capital into into the bargain much more than they have i think we're doing it a little less than we did in the heyday of of you know the urban renewal era but we're still doing it and it it's it, it has terrible consequences for urban uh, welfare and just to add a point uh, on the optimistic side um believe the um, Tebow effect has started to kick in more over time. So the uh, when you look at back at the 50s, I think we'd be hard pressed to find best places to live. Information's become better. Uh, the sources with the, in different cities, I've been in uh, couples that have relocated to Tucson, Arizona, that will say, look, we had 10 factors and we researched them. And this is why we ended up here. Uh, capital and labor would argue have both become more mobile. And so cities, um, there's more pressure now to perform. So uh, there may be restraints, but there's still a political market for control that if you screw up too badly uh, and do damage to a city, uh, the bite is worse than it used to be. You go bankrupt. <laughs> you go bust. Uh, we have a question in the back. Uh, and we, we've got... Uh, we can stretch it a, a few minutes, uh, so we'll see if we get maybe two or three more questions and fire away. Okay, Michael Croft, I'm an engineer. Uh, I'm going to try to channel a little bit of Rush Limbaugh here. Uh, the Republican Party is singularly unwilling to defend free markets and deregulation, especially whenever there's a shadow of Obama nearby. They're terrified of being labeled racist if they openly disagree. So my question to you is, what boomtown messaging would you recommend that would resonate with the dependent and low-information voters that the president and his party loudly pro propagandize? Oh boy. Tough question. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm hoping for advice on messaging from from you guys. Um, the, the, everybody in a city, to some extent, is a capitalist, and um, sometimes they don't realize that. So, small homeowners, you know, this relates to the previous question too. Um, whether you own a home or you're trying to start a business or um, uh, you're a, you're a big money uh, um, you know player in in uh, in the urban economy. Um, you're a capitalist, and you have to you have to understand some of these fundamental 
you know, forces that will that will guide decision making about capital, and, and you have to defend your property rights. And so, I mean, in terms of messaging, I would just simply say we, we need to educate people about these various forms of capital, social, human, physical, financial, and so forth. And then we say, okay, what, you know, what's your stake? You know, you're you're a capitalist. You're an owner of something. Whether it's your brain power or whether it's your network of friends and associates in your neighborhood and so forth, and and you have to defend that. And and I think that's that's likely to be um, successful a, a successful appeal because it's just simply obviously in my self interest not to allow um, what I've worked hard to create or earn be taken from me. Yeah, Steve uh, on the. Uh, the the message is it's a little tough if you take uh, you know just the the, the first uh, message on property taxes because the the, the public thinks of taxes in, 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 and and they don't connect it for, for like with capital theory like Steve's done and they think of it all, all these tax rates in static terms so remember the San Francisco chart that he had that little bar chart where the, you had Jarvis come in '78 and and then the, the, the typical thinking is, oh, this is just going to wipe us out. As Steve had some quotes, you know, where revenue is going to go down. You, you lower the tax rate and the revenue goes down. Well, it did. There were like three years where the, the revenue in San Francisco went down. And, the, and then the thing shoots up because that's the dynamics of the whole thing. And so to get that message across of supply-side economics is what this is about uh, fundamentally, is is hard to do because on Capitol Hill they're they're still scoring the federal budget in static terms for God's sakes and when everyone knows it's dynamic it's not static but but er everything starting right at the federal level is is done with these blinders on and it's just very hard to get the message across I mean Steve and I uh, uh, I tagged along with Steve a couple times down to City Hall and in Baltimore, and it, it, it's very hard to, to get the, the, the message across. I mean, even, even if you have a sympathetic ear, which I think w at least nominally we did, it's, it, 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 it gets complicated because the first thing they do is they say, well, what are you going to do about the, bud the budget? You know, we're going to have a revenue shortfall of X dollars right away. And <laughs> So you, you have to deal with that. We, we came up with some kind of creative ways to, to get over that gap. But it, it starts complicating the narrative a, a lot. And you're talking about a politician who, who's, who's out on the, on the stump, uh, not an economist who's going to try to explain this in simple terms so the public gets it. And it's just, you, you need somebody like a Reagan who can uh, do, do supply-side economics and 30 seconds and get it across. But at any rate, um, Dick, did you have any wind up remarks? Mark? Good. Uh, I, I think uh, with that last little uh, two minute episode, I, I exhausted our Q&A time. So thank you very much for attending now.